Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. Catering, that was a great lunch. I just, yes. I'd just like to make a couple brief announcements before I reintroduce David. Uh, next week's session of SACPA will feature Shannon Frank, and it's entitled From Source to Tap, What Are the Solutions to Big Challenges in Our Headwaters? Shannon is the Executive Director of the Old Man Watershed Council, which is a nonprofit organization working to maintain and improve the Old Man Watershed. That, of course, is being held in this very room at the same time next week at noon. I'd also like to announce, if anyone's interested, uh, there will be a, uh, a Better Way Alberta forum, or town hall, excuse me, on the budget tonight at the Galt Museum starting at 7 p.m. This will be a forum to discuss the recent cuts in, in education, in health, and in post-secondary income supports that was released in the budget last Thursday. Uh, Better Way Alberta is a coalition of labor, labor groups, students, uh, concerned citizens who believe there is a better way for Alberta to manage its resources and manage its budget that actually would probably reduce some of the inequality we just talked about. So that's again at 7 p.m. tonight at the Galt Museum. Um, so we're ready for Q&A. And as usual, when you are, there's a microphone right there where you can ask uh, David your question. Uh, I, as, as per usual as well, please state your name and try and be as brief as possible and make sure you do get out your question. So, without any further discussion, here is David. Hi, oh. Hi David, my name is Henning Mundel, and I have sort of a double-barreled one. One is, uh, you made reference to the trickle-down theory and... Uh, you know, how by and large it just doesn't work, that it, however ideology seems to hold it in place. Um, I just want to express my great incredulity that that is still the case. 47 years ago, I was preparing to go to India. I had uh, done some uh, rural sociology, minor economics in it, but I was trying to prepare and look at the situation in India. And the reference I came across, references I came across then, not Googled, but books and articles, there was completely debunking of the trickle-down theory, which had been tried in the 50s and 60s and early 60s in India, and it just didn't work. So how can such an ideology for half a century be lagging on? Can it just be ideology? But my other question really is, the reports that you refer to, that you, the Parkland Institute, put out in connection with the disparities, does government get them? Does the government respond to them? Great. Thank you for your questions. Um, in terms of the first one, it is, it's remarkable, the staying power of this ideology. And you're totally correct to say that it has languished uh, in political circles for uh, many years, if not decades, with an abundance of evidence showing that it's not working for the majority of people. And um, 
I mean, we can see it. It's not. It's not certainly not reaching this provincial government. Uh, the this recent budget showed that you know they they still uphold uh, with those ideas, and it it is remarkable. Another remarkable thing is that it's still around after the Great Recession. Uh, at the time, I don't know if, if people remember, but all the um, a lot of the people were were saying in the media that this was the end of neoliberalism. This was the end of the the idea of the trickle down effect. Well, it, it clearly wasn't, and that that shows us that this these ideas have some tremendous staying power, and so it means that uh, people like us in the Parkland Institute need to redouble our efforts to make sure that these types of uh, data and statistics are getting out to the people, and that that you know we take the Kool Aid off the table and replace it with something better. Uh, and as to the other question. Um, we we focus our efforts on um, give uh, on giving out our ideas and our reports in uh, places like this where uh, we're talking directly to Albertans and to concerned citizens. Um, the we we've learned long ago that the provincial uh, government doesn't really care for what we have to say for good reasons. We often conflict very strongly. Um, so we leave it. We we focus on getting the ideas out to uh, to the most most as many Albertans as we can. Uh, Terry Shillington, thank you, David, for your presentation. Uh, wonderful facts and information. I do want to quibble with one um, uh, one of your comments. Um, I hear that uh, that you offer proportional representation as one of the Solutions, because I guess uh, behind all this is public apathy about about um, uh, the information that you bring forward. And so I have friends who think that proportional representation would make almost everything in, in Alberta better. Uh, but I, as one who lived two years in proportional representation in Germany, uh, I was anything but impressed uh, with some of the implications. But I think that we wildly underestimate the level of apathy and disinterest and distrust of institutions if we think that simply changing the system to proportional representation will will um, make our children and grandchildren uh, wildly excited about voting. Uh, I think it's just a wild oversimplification of the of the the deeply rooted apathy and disinterest that marks uh, Alberta politics. Uh, well, thank you very much. Uh, I'd love to chat with you more afterwards, actually, about your experience in Germany with that. And uh, I didn't mean to give the impression that uh, progr uh, uh, proportional representation was the only thing that we should do, but certainly I think it's one of them. And the reason is because uh, looking through public polls that have been done in this province over the past decade, and what they, how they, what they show Albertans think on key policy issues is incredibly different from the policies that Albertans actually get from this government. And that's a huge problem. And one of the reasons that I think it remains like that is because uh, our because governments can be elected with such a minority of voters, and so that's really a, a major problem that needs to change. I mean, you can go through uh, from how Albertans think on royalties. Most Albertans think royalties <laughs> should be increased. We get royalty decreases. Uh, Albertans think that there should be hard caps on greenhouse gas emissions and investments in renewables. We get intensity targets and. Uh, you know, some nonsense climate change policies. Um, 
So that that's that's a serious uh, you know gap that needs to be addressed. My name is Van Christou. <coughs> um, it's uh, always a, a pleasure to have the Parkland Institute uh, come into contact with the Southern Alberta Council of Public Affairs. Uh, we have a lot in common. Um, thanks for being here today. I have a question that I want to ask regarding a conversation at our table, um, thinking about the acceleration of the negative effect of this maldistribution of wealth uh, here in Alberta and globally. Uh, the fact that uh, over the years since Reagan, uh, the second-class actor uh, convinced uh, America that trickle-down was, was the greatest thing since uh, sliced bread, uh, it seems to have been catching on even more due to the advertising through the media and the, the different kinds of communications that we have today with the improved technology. Uh, do you not think, and my question is, do you not think that we have even a greater responsibility now for, to get the message out to people uh, to understand a problem which is growing as we speak and, and can have such disastrous final effects on our society? Mm -hmm. Definitely. And I, I, I mean, I think you nailed it there with uh, the correct analysis of the birth of uh, some of these ideas with Reagan and Thatcher would be the other major politician that jumped on board with that, and we've got our own politicians in Canada that uh, subscribe to the ideas. And it's true. I, similar questions before, I mean, it's, it is quite remarkable, the lasting power of this idea. Amid all the evidence to the contrary that it's not in the interest of the majority of people. And it, it, it is increasing, and there is a great responsibility on organizations like the Parkland Institute to get the information out to people that... This is not working, that giving rich, giving more of our resources to the rich is not trickling down. It's not helping the majority of people. I mean, $4,000, $4,000 raise after 30 years of economic growth. I mean, it's amazing that people still hold the idea then that why, why do we care about economic growth? Why, why are we so captured by the idea of if this policy is going to increase GDP and this policy won't? If it doesn't mean a real income gains for the mid bottom 90% of people, why are people still buying into that? I mean, it's, it is, it's incredible. Hi, David. My name is Tom Kane, and thank you for coming. Um, echo the thoughts of other speakers. Um, the Premier, when she was getting ready to give the budget, she did a lot of um, speaking about it and said she wasn't concerned about the revenue side of the budget. Um, I'm always concerned with the revenue side of my budget um, because it's pretty easy to look at the deficit side. It's always there. Um, but in our Alberta budget, all of a sudden, she uh, got us thinking, well, we have to have this big, huge deficit and refused to look at the revenue side. So in your graphs, I, I haven't got a great photographic memory for graphs, so I'd like to know, did you show us one of how much the corporation's uh, developing the tar sands, what's the profit level? Not the chief executive officers who are, of course, getting a wonderful wage, but what about um, the profit from the tar sands? How are those companies doing even when the price of oil dips down? Mm -hmm. I'm annoyed that Albertans have to pick up the tab because the price of oil dropped down. We go into a big deficit, and taxpayers have to pay for that 
but our premier doesn't follow the lead of Lahid that she admires so much to ask for more royalties. I agree with all your points you made about asking for more royalties, but can we ask for more royalties in um, a, a low cost for oil year? That's really the main thing is can we ask for, is it reasonable to ask, why isn't it reasonable to ask for more royalties this year above all other years, even though the price of oil dropped? What would that do to the corporations? Mm -hmm. It's a great question. Um, I mean, during the boom years, uh, the sort of mid-2000s, I mean, the oil corporations were posting record high profits regularly. The oil, the tar sands is not not a losing game. There's, there's uh, They like to sort of make a lot of noise about how uh, much the tar sands costs cost them uh, to produce. And it's true, it is technically uh, much more costly, but that's the trend globally in oil extraction and oil production is that the costs are going up because hard oil is more difficult to find and it's more difficult to extract. And the question is, who should be picking up the tab for those extra costs? And the government's saying, well, the people will pick it up. We'll reduce our royalties. We're seeing that. We've seen that uh, in the tar sands and how they have the province set the royalties there. We're seeing it now with uh, the tight oil and, and the new developments with shale gas and stuff like that. The government's saying that, well, we'll reduce our take. We'll give a, a royalty holiday so that you can still uh, make your profits. Well, that's, that's unacceptable from the point of view that Albertans should be getting the maximum value they can for their resources. And the fact is that oil has become much more difficult to find in the world. And especially for private oil companies, it's much more difficult to own. Uh, the vast majority, I'm forgetting the number off the top of my head, but the vast majority of oil reserves in the world are off limits to private oil companies. They can't get them because they're owned by national oil companies. Uh, think Saudi Arabia, think Venezuela, uh, think Nigeria, not, not Nigeria. <laughs> um, but some of these big players... Um, where the resources are owned by the national oil companies. And so there's actually just a small sliver of oil reserves in the world that these private oil companies can invest in. And over half of it is here in Alberta. Over half. So if we say, if we take, uh, if we take the tar sands um, off, of their, off of their map, they, they're not allowed to invest in it unless you know, they agree to the higher royalties rates, where else are they going to go? They yeah. still make a profit, do they? Yes. Oh, yes, tremendous amount of profit. And the trick there is you can't just look at simple uh, ins and outs of costs and resources. Otherwise, it looks like a pretty tight game um, when you look at the benefit or the, the revenue and the costs. But the trick is that we provide, the government has a policy of providing a royalty break. Uh, we only charge 1% to 9% of gross revenues up to the point where the oil company has recouped all of its costs that it's put in, um, and then we sort of kick in a higher royalty rate of 25 to 40% of the profit. So what that does is it basically, um, it, it's a bit, of a, a bit of a shell game because it says, okay, oil corporations, you put your money in the tar sands, we'll give you bitumen, we'll give you the, the bitumen that Albertans own, for virtually free, you recoup your costs, costs, and then you start making your profits on your 30-year projects. Um, so it's it's a base, it's a it's a subsidy 
that, that needs to stop. I'm Beth Mundell-Atherstone. <clears throat> Thank you very much, David. You're going to think that this is a setup because this is quite a segue to what you just said. So you mentioned three components of the Alberta Advantage, of which oil is one. But when Andrew Nikoforik was here and uh, the premise of his recent book, Slaves of Energy, um, he argues that, um, that oil is the problem. And um, Jeff Rubin, who was the past head of the economics division of CIBC, in his recent book, also argues that when oil reaches three digits, in other words, $100 a barrel or more, then we, re we face a recession. And each time this has happened, um, North America has gone into a recession because then the price of oil is so great, it's difficult for people to, um, to pay for it. So, um, to use your uh, metaphor, it would appear that our Alberta government has drunk the Kool-Aid by being duped and putting all of its dreams in oil. And um, that, this, this, that oil really is the main factor in leading to the inequality of, um, of revenues for people in Alberta. Well, it's a good point. I mean, the, uh, it just was in the papers the other day, actually, about how the uh, European economies are saying that the high price of, their, of uh, the international oil is impeding their ability to escape recession. And meanwhile, in Alberta, we're complaining, how come the price of oil for our oil isn't as high as the world price? So there is that, uh, that disconnection there. And, I mean, the royalties, is, it does play a major, major part here. I mean, Alberta is an incredibly, incredibly wealthy province. The fossil fuel resources that we own are the third largest in the world, and that should make Alberta, if it managed those resources properly, an incredibly wealthy society. And we wouldn't have this inequality, we wouldn't have the poverty that we see. Um, I think that that future is, is doable uh, and is, is attainable. And certainly climate change has made very real the fact that we cannot remain an economy that's dependent on the extraction and sales of fossil fuel resources. And the, the disappointing, the extremely disappointing um, economic strategies of this province and increasingly our, our federal government is to put our eggs more and more in that one basket. And we're increasingly looking to the tar sands to get us out of any revenue trouble. Uh, and as we just saw with this last budget, how goes the tar sands goes the provincial budget because they're unwilling to uh, move on, on other revenue reform. So, um, but that, that can't last. Climate change has made it very clear that we, we can't rely on the tar sands forever. We need to figure out a way to uh, deleverage our dependence on fossil fuel resources while still maintaining a high quality of life. And I, personally, I think that's with, uh, with the green economy. It's with um, moving towards development that, is, uh, that extracts at a slower rate increases our revenue, and we then shift our investments with that revenue towards a green economy through promotion of uh, energy efficiency, renewable energies, green infrastructure, uh, while creating good, good secure uh, manufacturing jobs. Just a quick programming note. We'll get through the queue of question, questioners there, but that'll be the end of it. Thanks.
Hi, David. Shannon Phillips. Um, might I suggest that when we're swatting the Kool-Aid out of people's hands, we replace it with a glass of municipal tap water uh, <laughs> produced in a publicly run, high-quality facility by employees who enjoy a collective agreement and good wages, benefits, and a pension. Um, but uh, I, want, I know that you folks at the Parkland put out a report recently on progressive income tax. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about it, um, specifically what kind of revenues are on the table with uh, uh, such a plan, uh, who would pay more, who might pay less, those kinds of details. Sure. So we did just put out a report um, which attempted to, again, articulate an alternative future uh, and an alternative policy path. The government has, um, which other speaker alluded to, is that the government sort of gave the impression that there was no option but these cuts. There was no, it, the government had no option but to, uh, you know, drastically cut post-secondary post -secondary education and, and freeze um, public sector wages. Uh, but there is an alternative, and the alternative is revenue reform, and specifically, we looked at um, income taxes in this province, as well as corporate taxes. And a, I mean, bringing back a progressive income tax is, I mean, it's nonsensical. Uh, or sorry, it's it's a, it should be a done deal. I mean, most people would definitely be on board with the idea that uh, we should be paying less tax, those than the bottom 90% and that those fortunate enough to be in the top 1% and 10% should be paying more of a share, more of their share. Uh, when we, uh, when the, progress, when the um, PCs brought in the flat tax in 2001, it meant significant tax cuts to the top income earners in this province. And as um, we've seen, that's coincided with a sharp rise in inequality in this province. And it's time that the, um, the, the tax burden be shifted back uh, off our backs and more onto their backs who can definitely definitely handle it. Um, the provincial government, the provincial budgets up until this year have uh, consistently put out this fantastic graph where they show uh, how undertaxed Alberta is and they don't frame it like that but it's uh, it's clear and what it shows is that at the minimum Alberta could raise tax revenue $11 billion and still be tied for the lowest tax jurisdiction in Canada. I mean, that is incredible, incredible pie that they refuse to look at when they're doing their budgets. So it's, uh, it's time that they do. My name's Cheryl Bradley, and the response you've given to the previous question kind of stole my question. But maybe I'll just take it a little further. Um, is there been any work done on the willingness of Albertans to pay more taxes and to sort of get us on a more even keel with respect to revenues instead of the uh, huge swings that we, if we're totally reliant on resource royalties? Great question. Thank you. Because you reminded me that that was part of the report as well, which uh, is polling that um, was done that shows that more Albertans do support increasing taxes. Uh, and this isn't, this isn't actually all that new. Albertans have stated before that faced with the choice of uh, cuts to services or increasing taxes, Albertans would choose increasing taxes. And you wouldn't get that sense from listening to anything that 
the provincial government has said over the last decade and more, um, or anything that you read in uh, mainstream media. Uh, so there's this huge disconnect between what we hear Albertans want, who Albertans are, and what polls show Albertans actually think on key issues, and taxation is, is one of them. Uh, I'm Trevor Page. Your presentation has certainly shown us that capitalism is working well. Um, I think history tells us that um, for there to be serious social change, we need revolutions. Um, I was interested or struck by two statements that you made, and I hope I got it right. I think they're related. One was that in Alberta, we have the lowest level of satisfaction with life. I wonder how you've determined that. And the other one was that in Alberta, 23% of the population are below the poverty line. And I wonder how you define the poverty line. So perhaps you could answer those two sure. questions. Thank you. So the uh, satisfaction with life was uh, done in a poll that's uh, a routine poll, and uh, it's reported in the, uh, the, one of the policy documents that we've put out on, this, on inequality. And I forget the exact source of it um, while I was preparing this document, but you can find it uh, in the 2010 social policy framework report that we put out. It, it wasn't, it wasn't uh, new research that I myself did. It was a poll that was put out. Sounds and like a very heroic statement. <laughs> and there was a second part to that question? Yes. Poverty line. Yeah. Um, uh, how, how are you defining the poverty line? Right. Again, I stole that stat from a report that we did, and um, I don't remember how they defined poverty, the poverty line. It's usually uh, either the low-income cutoff is the sort of standard in StatsCan, um, or there's the, um, the alternative measure which incorporates basically what would a person need uh, living in a specific, in either in a distinguished urban centers or rural um, rural setting, uh, and what's the general cost of living, and so what do they need to sort of have the basic necessities of life, food, clothing, housing, that sort of thing. I don't, I don't have the specific... I can get that to you. I'll email it to you if you want. I'm ever done. Thank you for reminding us of where we live and how we're being treated, or how we treat each other. You mentioned the oil being part of the problem of the disparity. However, the trickle-down theory doesn't work. Somebody's fixed the roof. However, uh, it seems like to me when you mentioned, you know, that if we raised the royalties of the oil, we would be an extremely wealthy province. Would it not in increase the disparity more because we continue to believe in this trickle-down theory or we give the ones in power the a reason that we do believe it because we still vote for this uh, party that keeps promoting this trickle-down industry, who, uh, trickle-down theory, whoever it hasn't worked for 60 years, but I mean in reality. 
Um, so if I, if I understand your question correctly, I think the, the crux here is that the profits that come from oil extraction can is either go to the oil corporations or they can go to the public through royalties and land sales. Right now, the, our government has set those uh, that cost of extracting and selling our resources very low. And if they increase that price, we would capture more of those profits and be able to invest those in uh, services and programs uh, and other such things that would actually distribute the revenue back down uh, rather than leaving it in the hands of the wealthy oil corporations. So when we give them a royalty holiday until all their investment is paid, they have no investment in the oil sands, it's ours. So what are they talking about? They're lying to us all the time. <laughs> Thank you. I'm sorry, Bev, we've got no more time. I just thought we should congratulate our friend Frank Toth on his 90th birthday last week. And in honor of your 90th birthday, because you did uh, hand me a note for a question, uh, we'll ask it quickly. Um, David, how does the free trade agreements that uh, Mul Brian Mulroney, like such as NAFTA and, and the Harper with the, with the FIPA with China and things like that, how will that affect us as Albertans? Not, not making it easy on me. <laughs> Well, I mean, the free trade agreements, the NAFTA has already had a tremendous impact on Canada. Um, it's certainly helped the uh, oil corporations. Exports to the United States have increased tremendously over that time, uh, which now apparently is that what we're hearing is a crisis, that we only are trading with them and not uh, anyone else like Eastern Canada, for instance. Um, and it's also, um, I mean, the, some of the new trade agreements coming forward uh, could have tremendous impacts on, uh, on Alberta and Canada. For instance, the European trade agreement, um, what we saw there was an effort uh, on their part to distinguish um, oil based on the carbon emissions associated with the various types of oil. And... Uh, you know, I think the provincial government and the federal government really let their, um, showed the, their stripes when they went to the, to the wall in order to uh, defeat that proposal, in order to make sure that uh, the free trade agreement wouldn't recognize the uh, intensive carbon emissions that are associated with tar sands oil. Um, so I think, that's, I think that's pretty clear from that. Okay. Thank you, everyone, for coming. That concludes our session, and special thanks again to David Campanella.